Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive issues in the history of popular music. Today, I examine the payola scandals that came to haunt the radio and music industries in the late 50s and early 60s, and we ask a question that is too often overlooked. Is payola necessarily bad? Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. The Federal Communications Commission, or FCC, was created by the Communications Act of 1934 to regulate interstate and international communication via broadcasting. At first related to radio and the telephone, but later expanded to accommodate television, cable, satellite. It was commissioned at first to regulate licensing of radio stations to make sure stations weren't crowded out of bandwidth, which would foster an unfair advantage to certain stations. Bandwidth is a limited commodity, so the primary function of the FCC was to make sure people wanting to have a radio broadcast from a properly licensed station had access. Payola, in 1934, although it was already part of the media landscape, was not a concern. The FCC later comes to define Payola as a violation of the sponsorship identification rule. It's perfectly fine to get money from sponsors. In fact, radio depends on it. It's even allowed to play records owing to gifts and money received, but the sponsorship must be announced on air and the money must be disclosed on income tax. The problem for the House Special Subcommittee on Legislative Oversight, chaired by Orrin Harris and convened uh, with respect to payola in November of 1959, was that DJs seemed to be ever more powerful within the radio environment, particularly DJs peddling a kind of music uh, that was abhorrent to most members of Congress, and that was, of course, rock and roll. These DJs had become tastemakers for the youth, and as I will suggest at the end of this episode, tastemakers for the youth are often considered dangerous. Of course money changed hands to get music on the air. The question emerges though, how did it do so? How transparent was that exchange? And how worrisome of an issue is all this? Well, let's come back to that. First, let's place this issue in context. From its early emergence as a broadcasting medium, radio presented the problem of profitability. How can you make money from it? Sure, those selling radio sets are making money because they're selling a physical object, but what about the entrepreneurs of broadcasting itself? The question that arose specifically was this. Were radio broadcasts that featured entertainment, including musical performances, a public good or a commercial enterprise? Let's get technical just for a second. A public good is defined by two elements. It is non-excludable and non-rivalrous. Let's take air as a public good. I can say to you, hey, pay me $3 before you breathe. You won't, of course. You'll breathe anyway, and I can do nothing about it. That makes it non-excludable. I can't exclude you from using a public good. That's not true of private goods. If I sell you a burger, that doesn't entitle Sally or Jake to a burger as well, unless they pay. It is a private good, even though it is sold on the public market. The other element of a public good is that it is non-rivalrous. Take, again, air. At least under current circumstances, my breathing doesn't compete with your breathing. It doesn't prevent you from breathing. 
The same is not true of a burger. My eating a burger, this burger, makes it impossible for anyone else to eat it. Of course, the medium of the radio broadcast posed various issues with which radio stations would have to grapple if they were to turn a profit at all or even just be financially stable. Anyone with a radio could hear whatever was being broadcast as long as they had a set. So it seems, on the surface, rather obvious that radio broadcasts ought to be considered a public good, provided one purchased the set, and the sets, of course, were not private public goods. Was it even possible to charge a licensing fee? Various schemes were considered. Now that might seem odd, but not unreasonable. Think of water as supplied to the home. Rainwater, I suppose, is fairly clearly a public good, but water supplied to the home may not be. Now many writers, including Paul Krugman in I think a, a moment of weakness in one of his articles, because honestly he obviously knows better, he does assert, and other writers do assert, that water is a good example, even a paradigmatic one of a public good. But it's nothing of the sort. You want proof? Stop paying your water bill. Water as such, again, again, rainwater paradigmatically, may be a public good, but the supply of relatively clean, safe water to your home is not non-excludable. You will be excluded through non-payment. Now, there's no way I know of to shut off a radio broadcast, similar to how the water supplier might shut off one's water, but there might be other ways in which we can think of uh, charging for a radio broadcast. But still, as you know, the solution to making owning and running a radio station viable and even profitable was by selling time for advertising. This was a bit controversial at first. After all, that means that advertising, that suspicious public activity, uh, was infiltrating the privacy of your home, the citadel of your private sphere. Wouldn't this make advertising particularly invasive and even collapse some of the distinction between the public and private spheres? Might not every moment of your life now, at least potentially, become an opportunity for someone to sell you something? Now, plenty of people in Congress and the people they represented had their doubts about this, about this compromise, allowing advertising, but it was deemed necessary in order to support radio. Now, right from the, the beginning, corporations move in. Uh, corporations that are radio corporations buying into the music industry and vice versa. So, for instance, in 1929, the Radio Corporation of America, RCA, purchases Victor, then the largest manufacturer of gramophones and recordings. And then the company becomes known as RCA Victor, with David Sarnoff as president, who concentrated a lot of his energy on the development of radio and the development of programming on the radio in order to sell his products, which included music. In 1938, CBS buys Columbia Records, so more of that uh, crossing over. Between those dates was the rise of the large radio programs sponsored by corporations selling products. One of the most important for our purposes was Your Hit Parade, debuting in 1935. The show was more or less a spin-off of an earlier radio show sponsored by Lucky Strike as part of a larger advertising push by the company. Lucky Strike was attempting to capture the youth market, as can be seen from the rather crass slogan, quote, reach for a lucky instead of a sweet, end quote. That candy's bad for you, kids. Smoke up. Stay healthy. But even more importantly, be grown up. Well, part of capturing a youth market involves what all commercial musical art involves, making people believe they are with it, that they are up to date, they're in the know. 
And young adults, well, they like to dance. So Lucky Strike creates Lucky Strike Saturday Night Dance Party on the NBC Red Network. NBC at this time had two networks, the red and the blue. Uh, And it was broadcast from 10 to 11 p.m. on Saturday nights when young people might be listening and might be looking to dance. The show started in September of 28. That show, that first iteration, the show was hosted by the band leader Benjamin A. Rolf, who also recorded for Edison Records as B.A. Rolf and his Lucky Strike Orchestra. So notice, the advertising is built right into the name of the new musical product. When you are buying a song by the Lucky Strike Orchestra, you're buying into the advertising for that company. The music is a form of advertising. By November of 1935, uh, the, the show is reconfigured as Your Hit Parade. Notice that, right? It's Your Hit Parade. And we want to, how is it yours, might be one of our questions. Now, they played 14 of the purportedly top 15 songs in random order and then the number one. The show was on both NBC and CBS for several years. That shows how central it was. Their publicity department made the following claim, quote, The Your Hit Parade survey checks the best sellers on sheet music and phonograph records, the songs most heard on the air and most played on the automatic coin machines, an accurate, authentic tabulation of America's taste in popular music." End quote. So notice they're emphasizing the accurate and authentic nature of this tabulation, but how precisely did they arrive at it? Another show, Make Believe Ballroom was sponsored by Retardo, a diet pill. It also debuted in 1935 with the quote-unquote original DJ Martin Block. He came up with the idea of spinning records on the air instead of having live bands because the radio station didn't want to miss out on the live updates from the Lindbergh Baby Trial, which ran from January 2nd to February 13th in 1935. So he's, he's basically inventing, he may have borrowed some of the idea from Al Jarvis, a West Coast DJ, but he's basically inventing the notion of playing recorded music, canned music as it was called, on the air. That creates all sorts of opportunities. Now what you're doing is not having a band that you're paying to entertain people, but you're playing a product, a product that people can go out and buy. Playing music on the radio is a form of advertising that music. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. He even used a crooner-like intimate voice, right? He's not competing anymore for volume of a live audience or live band or live actors. So there's a sense of that kind of gentle, intimate advertising voice that sells quite well, right? His show became so popular but that by 1941 there was a list, a waiting list, for sponsors to sponsor it. It was also just the, the next year after the, the premiere of both uh, Your Hit Parade and... Um, Make Believe Ballroom, uh, in January 4th, on January 4th of 1936, Billboard publishes its first hit parade chart, and that's what it's called at first, a hit parade chart. And they relied on reports and collected data on DJ plays, jukebox inclusion, and retail sales. Well, how reliable was this data? Probably not terribly. Uh, There are too many points of entry, too many places for human choice based on self-interest to intervene. There's no objective measure here, just human reporting from selected DJs, not all DJs, selected DJs, and selected record store owners, not all record store owners, selected ones, whose reporting is entirely voluntary. There's no one to check on it, right? And that allows for a certain amount of power, which they often use to their advantage. 
Things only get more suspicious in the 1950s, which we would be right to regard as the heyday of the DJ, the personality DJ, whose show was popular not just for the music played on it, but also for the banter of the DJ with his audience. A one-way banter, mostly, right? It's the DJ speaking to the audience, and so it feels like the, uh, the exertion of a kind of power. The DJ serves as a kind of proxy, a stand-in for the audience. A DJ like Alan Freed on the radio or Dick Clark on the television with American Bandstand modeled excitement and engagement for the audience. Not surprisingly, some of that excitement, however, derived from financial interest. Take 16 Candles by the Crests. Supposedly, Dick Clark didn't like the song all that much. He wouldn't play it. But then a deal was made. He got 50% of the publishing rights. And he starts playing it on the bandstand a lot. Before you know it, it's a number two hit on the Billboard charts. Nothing attracts a crowd like a crowd, even if it's a manufactured crowd. Moreover, there was an explosion of DJs in the 1950s. In 1950, there were roughly 250 DJs working in the U.S. But by 1957, there were over 5,000. They had the ears of the people, most prominently, the youth. So the House subcommittee decided to take a look into payola. This was hot on the heels of their investigation into rigged quiz shows. Contestants on these TV quiz shows that attracted audiences were being fed answers to build the drama, to keep the viewers engaged. It makes for good television, but it's unfair with respect to an actual contest. And that tells us something. Fairness? Maybe it's not that much fun to watch. Now, Orrin Harris and the subcommittee convinced themselves that payola was more of the same, and that it could be blamed for the otherwise inexplicable rise in popularity of a music they deemed beneath contempt, rock and roll. The feeling arose that if certain songs were getting an unfair advantage by being played more often than others, not owing to popularity, but rather through payment, then this must be stopped. So, at least on the surface, it was stopped. Alan Freed, Several other DJs, they were ruined. Dick Clark, a far cannier businessman, he received a slap on the wrist. So, problem solved, right? It all seems so straightforward. Payola is clearly a type of bribery, isn't it? And bribery is wrong. Ergo, payola is self-evidently a corrupt practice. But what if it's not? What if that view, that payola is corrupt, depends upon a misprision, a misunderstanding of the role that music plays as a mass art.
you to imagine a scenario with me. You're going into your favorite grocery store, or just the one you use the most. You go to the breakfast aisle and you just stand there for a moment. Now, your eyes, only semi-glazed, scan the aisles. Pay attention to what you see. In the central position, vertically, but probably close to one or the other point of entry, not all the way to the entrance, but close, you find Fruit Loops, Frosted Flakes, Special K, Rice Krispies. Nearby will be Cheerios, Cinnamon Toast Crunch, Lucky Charms. Go down a bit further, at least in my store, and you can find, again, centrally placed Quaker Oats. Maybe Nature's Path, maybe Better Oats, but the shelf is dominated by multiple varieties of that Quaker staring back at you. Pay attention to the boxes. Never mind the contents for now, pay attention to the boxes. They're placed at or near eye level. They're arranged so that all the boxes face perfectly forward, or depending on the time of day and the number of customers, maybe a little less than perfectly forward. The boxes have images and designs that are attractive, pleasing, alluring. That Cheerios box with its blazing yellow field and red heart-shaped bowl, three strawberries resting inside the round pieces of cereal, reinforcing the underlying triangularity of the heart. The shape of the bowl reminds one that this cereal purports to be more than delicious. It's virtuous. It's good for your heart. And so the heart does double duty. You will love the cereal and it loves you back by helping one of the most vital organs. Never mind the poisonous weed killer found in Cheerios. The eye is dotted with a Cheerio, of course. Uh, a red banner undulates over the box with the phrase, can help lower cholesterol as part of a health, uh, heart healthy diet making the consumer feel wise in buying this product. After all, as it says in the lower left corner, it's made with 100% whole grain oats. How could it be less than utterly salubrious? But look at that banner. Notice the lower cholesterol part is in a penetrating white font. That's the headline. Cheerios will lower your cholesterol. But that's not what it actually says. It actually says it can help, maybe and only is part of a heart-healthy diet. But those parts are in yellow. That causes them to recede toward the background. The disclaimer is there, if you read it as a disclaimer, but it's designed not to register as boldly as the selling point. Each of these boxes seems to be a mini miracle of design. They look good. They're familiar enough to be almost self-effacing, but all you have to do is see a box that's not so carefully designed, and you notice the difference. You feel a little let down. Just go back and look deep below, or sometimes above, those items, and you find the generic stuff. You know, the stuff that has the lame graphics on the box, and the names that are clearly derivative of the brand names, but just a little off. Honey Nut Scooters, instead of Honey Nut Cheerios. Cocoa Rice, in place of Cocoa Puffs. Objectively, nothing is particularly less appealing about the notion of a cereal being called Scooters than being called Cheerios. I mean, what is a Cheerio, anyway? But it feels off. Why? By this point, you know why, but I'll say it anyway. Your comfort with Honey Nut Cheerios has to do with a long-standing effort to make you comfortable, to make you think of it all as a kind of, in all of its contrivances, well, familiar, recognizable, comforting, and natural. Of course, there's nothing natural about a Cheerio. Find me one in nature. But that brand is driven into our consciousness by advertising. From the honey brown color of the box, in contrast to the bright sunbeam yellow of the plain Cheerios box, 
to the bee mascot on the box and talking to breakfast seekers on those commercials, to the font, to the placement on the shelf, we're told that Cheerios is a natural, familiar, and welcome part of our morning routine. All those brands we discussed, those are all from two major companies, Kellogg's and General Mills. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I guess those two companies are just really good at making cereal. I don't know, maybe they are. Although I have to say that to my unrefined cereal palate, the cocoa rice are not all that inferior to the puffs. I will say that the puffs stay crispy longer in milk, but that kind of makes me a little suspicious. Should puffed rice stay crispy in milk longer than mere nanoseconds? Well, that's beside the point. I will also say that when most parents bring home cocoa rice in place of cocoa puffs, most children get a bit disappointed. Why? Because the cereal is more than cereal. It's an image, a sign of social status, a representation of a mode of living in a society where we know that part of what we are is how we seem, and how we seem is conditioned by what we have. That might seem like a lot of weight to put on cereal. But it is not what is done by cereal per se, but by commercial products as such. The fact that puffs are perceived to be better than rice, and clearly it isn't, since Kellogg's does quite well with Rice Krispies, uh, is it the K? Is it the misspelling? At any rate, the fact that Cocoa Puffs are perceived to be superior has to do more with the product than with the cereal as such. In fact, it may have rather little to do with the cereal. It has to do with products as products. Because when you buy cereal, you aren't just buying cereal, you're buying a product. We tend to mistakenly think of products as a kind of byproduct of the thing we're buying. Sure, Cocoa Puffs is a product, but, but that's just the kind of generic term for things we buy, right? So cars, televisions, mirrors, doesn't matter. Anything we buy is a product. So we think that the product nature of the product is of lesser importance. What matters is that I need cereal. But I'm suggesting that's not so. I'm suggesting that, that you already know that. If that wasn't the case, then the brand names on cereal, clothes, purses, and so on, they, they wouldn't matter. And they clearly do matter. Now, why do you see Frosted Flakes placed so prominently on the shelf? Why is it roughly at eye level with several facings? Why are Pepsi and Coke products placed in coolers and arranged the way they are? Marketing, of course. Pepsi and Coke, they pay for those coolers, and they get to dictate what goes there. That is their space. General Mills, Kellogg's, they pay for their placement. They pay for your attention via commercial ads. They, to be just a little flippant, are paying for rent in your head. This isn't a conspiracy, although I do like the sound of a Cocoa Puffs conspiracy, but that's not what it is. This is what it means to promote a commercial product. You know this. It probably doesn't bother you all that much, and I'm not suggesting it should. You can be more or less mindful of it, but no one assumes that the generic cocoa rice should get equal footing with cocoa puffs. General Mills has the money and power to promote it, and part of what makes it a true product is that it does more than feed us in the morning and give us a minor sugar rush. As a product, it is part of an arsenal of our commercial standing in the world, part of how we construct who we are in a commercial world, because part of who we are has to do with what we have, what we purchase, fine, whatever. Cocoa Puffs gets to be both a cereal and a product in the strong sense. And while I might think that the Puffs are no inherently better than cereal, uh, as cereal than the Cocoa Rice, I can't help but concede that Cocoa Puffs is the better product. Because of all the care and curation that goes into selling it, 
both as a cereal and as a product. The selling of it becomes part of its worth. Now, let me sh be sure that I'm being clear here. The hype around Cocoa Puffs, that's part of what you're buying. It's part of what makes it valuable. Sure, the taste matters, maybe, but it's just part of the equation. Then the question arises, does this apply to music as well? And if not, why not? It may be that we're so accustomed to this way of living that advertisements appear almost every time we use the television, the internet, a game on your phone, that we may scoff that it's an issue at all. So what? Things are being advertised. That's part of the value of the thing, right? But what that really tells us is that we're so comfortable with the fact that a major part of our identity stems from our status as consumers that it goes almost unnoticed. We're being sold all the time. So what? We're savvy consumers. We know this. So it doesn't matter. I don't know. But it seems to matter a great deal for many people when it comes to certain things. And one of those things is music. There's a central con contradiction, it seems to me, at the heart of our understanding of popular music. And this is what often leads to our discomfort with the idea of payola. Let's turn to that. As we discussed way back in episode one of this podcast, popular music is a mass art. There are several elements to this status, but really only one concerns us at the moment. Music, popular music, but really all music that can be bought and sold, which is I suppose now all music, is at once a form of art and a commercial product. These two elements, these two sides of its mode of being, its ontology, are not separable. They are inextricably interwoven, and this is the part many of us have a hard time seeing and accepting. Many of us, innocently enough, like to think that when we are engaged with a piece of music, when we are really listening attentively and devotedly, that the rest of the world, particularly the commercial part of the world, the world that we can't help but consider a little bit suspicious, if not corrupt, falls away, and we are face to face with the artwork, rich in experience, a kind of meeting of two beings that have at least to some extent bracketed out the world. Here I am, not Chad the teacher, not Chad the son or husband, certainly not Chad the consumer, not Chad the middle-aged man residing in the U.S. I am, when I'm listening closely, I am Chad abstracted from all that. 
a kind of pure Chad, lifted up out of the context in his pure Chadness, listening to a song, let's say Excursions by A Tribe Called Quest, which Spotify tells me is one of my most listened to songs these days. I'm listening to Excursions, and that song too is abstracted from time and place. It has a kind of pure excursionsness to it. This is one of the utopic elements of art experience for many people and many philosophers. It's a kind of heightened, bracketed experience, a meeting with a particularity. I'm not listening to this song merely as one song among many, nor even as a rap song among many other rap songs. I'm not listening to it as a jazz-inspired rap song within that subgenre. I'm not listening to it as just a tribe song among others, not even a tribe song from low-end theory. I'm listening, these thinkers suggest, to this song in its particularity at this moment, just as I am here in my particularity at this moment. I attend to the thisness of the song in this moment. I am present here with it. And that is what many of us take to be the aesthetic experience. Now, there are other ways to listen, of course. Music can be a background. We can, we can listen to it as an example of a genre or, or era-related trends. We can use it to pump us up while we're working out or uh, accompany us as we make love. We can attend as much to context whether our context or the context of the song, as to the song itself. Indeed, some thinkers want to make a suspicion of the various no very notion of the song itself. And maybe rightly so. Excursions wouldn't be what it is to me without all that context, both my own context and the context surrounding that song. And yet, while it still exists, that context gets drawn up into the experience of the particularity. Even thinkers like Derrida, who call into question the notion of a self-standing entity, a, a particularity, still can't totally eschew the notion of the in itself. In fact, Derrida may be speaking somewhat like I do here with that often quoted and debated line, il n'y a pas de hors text, often translated as there is no outside the text or there is nothing outside the text. Now, these two translations aren't equivalent, and I would say the first is preferable. It is not the case for Derrida, despite what some people would have you believe, that there is nothing outside the text, or just texts as such, as though the world is inhabited only by texts. We make everything into a text, I suppose, if for, for Derrida, the, uh, but the world as such includes things that are not text, things that are uh, not those things that we read and interpret. Rather, meaning and reading stays within the realm of the text. Now, that's, this doesn't have to be actual written texts or, or sounding texts in the case of music, right? When I look at the sky and I read it uh, to tell me about an impending storm, I'm within a text. While, while I gesture toward the real, perhaps there really are clouds up in that sky, I don't have access to that real, right? The real as such is not what has meaning, but rather, the various systems of language and thought and signification have meaning. And what they do is they point toward the real without ever touching it. Now, leave that aside for a moment. We're going to come back to that in a later episode. But there's another aspect of that saying, il ni pada, or text, that it seems to me that reveals uh, Derrida's efforts to demonstrate that the particularity of the text, the artwork, the gathering of clouds, whatever, is absorptive in nature. The artwork isn't merely in a context. It absorbs that context into its manner of being. Just like a good part of you 
is not merely in the context of where you live and your family situation and your upbringing uh, that, that conditioned you. You're, you're not simply defined by those things, but you have drawn them up into you. You've brought them, as Nietzsche would say, into the style of your being. That doesn't mean you're simply conditioned, just to reiterate. That doesn't mean that you simply are whatever your parents and your friends and your environment made you. But it means that all those influences, all that context, is drawn up into your style of being. You do things with it. You wouldn't be the same without it, just like uh, any genre wouldn't be the same without all of its contextual stylistic inputs. That doesn't mean that, that a song is determined by its genre. It uses that genre as part of its style of being, just as you use your upbringing as part of your style of being. So, while we like to think that we can separate the commercial side of music as a product from the artistic side of music as an experience, I would suggest that's not the case. The commercial aspect of mass art is not mere context. It is not what is on the outside of the artwork. It's inscribed on its very skin, so to speak. It is an intrinsic part of what mass art is and what it communicates. This is the same thing basically I was saying about Cocoa Puffs. Now, I can feel you bristling. Hell, I bristle a little at that. Are you saying, Chad, that Excursions, one of the finest songs by one of the finest bands in recorded music history, is somehow equivalent to a sugary breakfast cereal marketed to children with an outlandish, quite possibly psychopathic cuckoo bird named Sonny? Yeah, I guess I am. But a lot depends on that phrase, somehow equivalent. They are equivalent by being commodities, and commodities have a certain position in our social landscape, and part of their value comes from their, the context of their commerciality. They behave, so to speak, in certain ways. I'm not suggesting, however, that Cocoa Puffs is a mass art. Someone else can suggest that if they wish. I'm not suggesting that. That already makes the case of commercial music different, but not in the aspect of commercial music as a commodity. A commodity gets part of its identity from how it's sold. No one expects an even playing field when it comes to Cocoa Puffs versus Cocoa Rice. No one demands equal accommodation of both. And yet, we do hear this rhetoric with respect to music all the time. That is partly because we can't help but think of radio as a public good. But it is a public good paid for by advertisers, which means, ultimately, that you pay for it through your time, your attention, and your potential as a consumer. But when an advertiser chooses to place ads on certain stations and not others, that's because those advertisers are approaching certain markets and they want the items on the radio to reflect their products in some manner, however subtly, however unnoticed. We might think that payola degrades music by reducing it to the merely commercial. That was a primary argument in the payola hearings. The only reason kids listened to rock and roll was because it was being forced down the throats by, by canny and scrupulous, unscrupulous figures on behalf of the record executives looking to make maximum return on minimum investment. But that was a fallacious argument, and one built upon a prejudice against rock and roll and against the tastes of young people so long as those tastes didn't correspond to the taste of their elders. The congressmen liked to think that the ads were one thing and the songs were another. Of course, the ads are commercial. That's not a problem. But the music is art, and that should be about taste and cultivation. This is a false dichotomy, perhaps for all art, but certainly for anything we can call mass art. The commercial element is part of its standing as art. 
If these congressmen liked Frank Sinatra, well, he was selling them something as well. It's not divorceable, the selling from that part of art, from mass art. The image that sells is the image that you are seeking to experience. It's saleability, or in some cases, it's lack of saleability, which is just another form of saleability, not the absence of it, is bound up in what we take to be its quality. The problem is that we are all knowing consumers who think that we are all so comfortable with the situation, and yet we harbor a deep suspicion of it all. Sure, we say to ourselves, there is commercial music, but there's also good music, and these aspects can be separable. We know the good and the bad owing to taste, not what's sold to us. And this, for many, is the most damning element of payola. You have a tastemaker, like a DJ, who should just be presenting what is good and bad, but this DJ is just playing the bad because he or she is being paid extra to do so. But if taste is just about good and bad, uh, why are we, in this scenario at least, posited as being incapable or of distinguishing the good from the bad for ourselves? And if you say, no, we're capable, we can do that, then there's no problem with payola. We know the fix is in. We know the D we didn't think DJs were working for free. We know they're out for their own interest. We know the, that the music's being marketed to us. We can say, well, we don't like that. That, that this music isn't good, even though it's being forced down our throats. Uh, we give enough feedback to the radio stations. They're interested in their own profit. They're going to stop playing it. So why isn't that the solution? Right? No issue. The problem is that we harbor this belief that we don't really know the good or the bad. We harbor this suspicion. We like to say, yeah, we know good from bad music, but part of us is suspicious that really we don't. We recognize that somewhere deep down in mass art, Part of the quality of a work is its popularity, whether manufactured popularity or not. And I'm not sure there is a grassroots popularity that's not manufactured on some level. The problem isn't really with payola. Payment for placement ought not to be any more of a problem for a song than it is for Cocoa Puffs. The problem is a troubling form of conversion when it comes to mass art. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, because I'm talking about conversion in the logical sense. I can phrase a conditional statement as, if P, then Q. If I am hungry, I eat. The converse, then, is if Q, then P, just reversing the P, P and Q. If I eat, I am hungry. Now, some conditionals, in some conditionals, we find the converse holds. In some, we find it doesn't. I eat when I'm not hungry, at times, so it doesn't hold, right? I can't say that I eat. if I eat, I am hungry is necessarily true. In our case here, we have the conditional we like to believe in. If music is deemed good, it sells. But we suspect, and I would say rightly, that the converse holds as well. If music sells, it is deemed good. Now, for a Congress full of representatives who are suspicious of the youth and their lack of adherence to the values held by their elders, a youth with more disposable money than was the case for any previous generation in the U.S., money without as much obligation in the form of mortgages or rent or care of a family, and therefore money as pure will and desire-oriented purchasing power. Because money is, after all, power. Power is the potential to do something not necessarily the actual doing of it. And money is the power to purchase, the power to impact the economic environment, to have an effect on the social world. For a Congress suspicious of the youth and yet convinced they lack the maturity to make their own choices, their own decisions, convinced that they need to be led 
but they aren't being led by parents anymore. So someone else has to fill that void. For a Congress certain that the youth who will one day be in their position, kind of the ultimate form of potentiality and thus the ultimate form of power, to replace, right? For a Congress certain that they themselves thoroughly distrust their soon-to-be replacements. For this Congress, for this generation, looking at the next generation, the tastemakers, they're the worst threat. They're the paramount threat. That's the problem with payola. Not that it happens, because it's been happening all along to the benefit of the earlier generation. But rather, who's benefiting it from it now? That's the problem. Beware the tastemakers for their progeny, the progeny that used to be yours, shall inherit the earth. listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. For further information, please visit my website at chadwickjenkins.com or write me at cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. That's cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. I hope to hear from you soon.